I'm going to ask you to take your Bible and turn to John chapter 16, if you will, 16th chapter of the Gospel of John. As you're turning there, let me make mention of something that uh, Charles Nimmer just shared with me, and that is that Marjorie Blunt passed away this morning uh, over at um, Sunny Grove. So we appreciate your prayers for Marjorie and her family, and we'll be letting you know more about funeral details as the days come on. John chapter 16 is where we'll start this morning. A sculptor had ruined a huge piece of beautiful Carrera marble. It was left in the courtyard of the cathedral at Florence, Italy for almost a hundred years. Artisans thought it was beyond repair, but in 1505, a young sculptor named Michelangelo was asked if he thought anything could be done with what they now called the giant that was sitting outside the churchyard there in Florence. Michelangelo measured the block and carefully noted the imperfections caused by the bungling workmen of an earlier day. To his mind came the image of a young shepherd boy named David. So he carefully made a sketch of the biblical character as he envisioned him. And for three three years he worked steadily, his chisel skillfully shaping the marble. Finally, when one of his students was allowed to view the towering figure, 18 feet high, 9 tons in weight... He exclaimed, Master, it looks, it lacks rather only one thing, and that is speech. Michelangelo salvaged that gigantic, beautiful piece of Carrera marble. The word salvation comes from the word to salvage. Do you understand that if you are saved, you're someone who's been salvaged? You were someone who was headed for the junkyard, if you will, and God has salvaged you and redeemed you. And saved you for a new purpose. God salvaged us when He saved us. And no, we weren't beautiful people. Our sins and its consequences had made us ugly. But God's salvation has brought the only beauty that there is in our lives. This morning, I'm going to talk to you about the Holy Spirit's role in our salvation. And remember how we've defined the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the invisible presence of Jesus fulfilling God's purpose of redemption in and through His people, the church. The Holy Spirit is the invisible presence of Jesus fulfilling God's purpose of redemption in and through His people, the church. And this morning, what I want you to see is this. It's very simple. Every aspect of our salvation is attended by the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. Every aspect of our salvation is attended by the miraculous work of of the Holy Spirit. Now, as you look at your sermon outline, you'll see that I've got six aspects of our salvation that the Holy Spirit is involved in, that the Holy Spirit attends and works in our lives. So let's begin with number one. The Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin, of Christ's righteousness, and of the judgment to come. The Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin, of Christ's righteousness, and of the judgment to come. John chapter 16, verses 7b through 11 says the following, Jesus said, Unless I go away, the Comforter or the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, He says, will not come to you, but if I go, I will send Him to you. And when He comes, He will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because men do not believe in Me. In regard to righteousness, because I am going to the Father where you can see Me no longer. And in regard to judgment, because the Prince of this world now stands condemned. Pastor Mike Kakoras tells of once conducting a rap session with some high school students. He told them they could ask him any question that they wanted to ask him, and he would try to answer it. And 
They went through that session together, and most of the questions were typical of those kinds of sessions. Finally, at the end of that time, one young lady sitting in the back of the classroom raised her hand, and she had not said anything all along, so Mike thought it was a little bit curious, but he called on her, and she said this to him, The Bible says God loves everybody. And then it says that God sends people to hell. How can a loving God do that? That's not the easiest question in the world, but it does have answers. And Mike began to share that answer with this young lady, and as he did so, she disagreed with him. And as he began to answer her answers, she began to argue with his answers of her answers. The conversation quickly turned argumentative and degenerated into an argument, and Mike did not convince her, and she did not convince him. And after a few more questions, he realized the best thing he could do was to dismiss the session. After the session, Mike approached her and said, I... I owe you an apology, young lady. I really should not have allowed our discussion to become so argumentative. Then he asked, may I share something with you? She said yes. He began to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with her in a very simple presentation. And early on, when he came to Romans 3.23, that tells us that we've all sinned and fallen short of God's will for our lives, he began, she rather began to cry. It was then that this high school senior girl admitted that she'd been having an affair with a married man. Thankfully, when Mike finished his presentation of the gospel, she trusted Christ. But do you see what happened? The Holy Spirit had convicted her of her sin, but rather than repent, she chose to blame God for punishing sin. In her heart, she knew she'd sinned, and her conscience condemned her, but rather than face the fact of her guilt, she simply denied any future judgment or future hell. G.K. Chesterton, the 20th century English writer and Christian, had a prophetic insight into one of the great problems of our modern era. He wrote these words, What we suffer from today is humility in the wrong place. Humility has moved from the center of ambition and has settled upon the center of conviction, where it was never meant to be. Now, that may not mean a lot to you yet. From the center of ambition, humility that we ought to be humble when it comes to ourselves, to the center of conviction, that we need not be humble when it comes to truth. We need not say, your truth is as good as my truth. Everybody's truth counts the same. This last statement is the one that's telling. A man was meant to be doubtful about himself, not cocky, not arrogant, but humble. Doubtful, he says, about himself, but undoubting about the truth. This has been exactly reversed. And that's our problem in America today. We've taken God's truth, and now it is the source of our doubts. We don't believe it. Or we may say we believe it, but we don't practice it. And because of that, of course, our culture is taking a very southern trip into the toilet. We're having a real problem. When the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, we can ill afford to argue with God. He is God, and His truth is the truth. And then secondly, the Holy Spirit grants the gift of salvation upon our repentance and belief. The Holy Spirit grants the gift of salvation upon our repentance and belief. Acts chapter 2, verses 37 and 38 says, When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. What's that describing? It's describing what we just talked about. Conviction. Cut to the heart means they were convicted of their sin. 
all kinds of sin. But the worst sin was that they crucified the Lord of life, Jesus Christ. And they were cut to the heart, convicted deeply what they had done. And they asked Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter instructed his hearers to repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus. Baptism here is symbolic of our belief in Jesus. To be baptized is to side with Jesus Christ, right? Somebody gets wet in the baptistry over here? What they're doing is identifying themselves with Jesus Christ in His death and resurrection. It is to identify ourselves with Christ. It is, of course, to be baptized into the name of Jesus Christ and to trust in Him for the rest of our lives. So to be saved, we must believe, but we must also repent. Repentance means to change our minds about our sin and to do an about-face with regard to sin. always like the story of the two fellows who opened a butcher shop together and prospered. Then an evangelist came to town, preached a big revival. One of the butchers got saved. He tried to persuade his partner, as he should have, to accept the salvation given graciously by the Lord Jesus, but to no avail. Why won't you give your heart to Christ, Charlie? asked the born-again butcher. Charlie said, listen, Lester, if I get religion too, who's going to weigh the meat? Obviously, Charlie and Lester had been cheating people by using dishonest scales and charging people for meat they never got. But you know, Charlie did understand two things. Number one, he understood, he knew he had to repent to be saved. We ought to know that too. Jesus said in Luke chapter 13, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. We also must repent. And Charlie also knew what repentance was. He knew that if he repented, he couldn't cheat people anymore. It was time for that to end. And we need to know what repentance is as well. Have you given your heart in Christ, to Christ rather, in trust and repentance? But that's what salvation is all about. It's it's about giving my heart to the one in whom I believe and the one who changed my life. Then thirdly, the Holy Spirit converts us in a way that is best described as being born again. The Holy Spirit converts us in a way that is best described as being born again. John chapter 3, the scripture that Trey was reading a few moments ago, says this in verse 3, In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. And Nicodemus asked, How can a man be born when he is old? Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. And Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Now theologians have argued for centuries about what that means. But if they'd only looked at the next verse, they would know what it means. Notice what he says. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to the Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. Flesh gives birth to flesh. Spirit gives birth to spirit. Born of water and the spirit. What is the water? The water is certainly amniotic fluid. The water of birth. Physical birth. And then the spirit, of course, being born again, is a spiritual experience. Born of the spirit of God from the inside out that makes us new folks with new desires, new delights, and new dimensions. The new birth is called regeneration by theologians. It means that we've been reborn by God's Spirit. If you look with me at Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7, 
we see what Paul said about this new birth. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. That's that regeneration or new birth we were talking about. He goes on to say this, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. We're reborn. We're made new. God takes us and He makes us new. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, If any person be in Christ, they're a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. God wants your life, my friend. God wants your life because He wants to make it new. London businessman Lindsay Clegg told the story of a warehouse property that he was selling. The building had been empty for some time and needed repairs. Vandals had damaged the doors, smashed the windows, and thrown trash all over the interior. And as he showed the prospective buyer the property, Clegg took pains to let him know that he would replace those broken windows, bring in a crew to correct any structural damage, and clean out the garbage. But the prospective buyer said, forget about the repairs. When I buy this place, I'm going to tear it down. I just want the site. I don't want the building. And God says exactly the same thing to you and me at the moment of our salvation. He says, listen, I'm not interested in your self-improvement. I'm planning on something much bigger than that. I just want the site. And I want the permission to build in your life what I know I can build and what I know you need. I'm going to make you a new person in Jesus Christ. And I simply want your permission to do that. Then fourthly, the Holy Spirit sanctifies us by making us more like Christ each day. The Holy Spirit sanctifies us by making us more like Christ each day. That word sanctification comes from the Latin word sanctus, which means holy. Over and over again in the Old Testament, God tells His people, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Over and over again, God says that to us. Holiness means that God is different. We are sinful. God is holy. You see, holiness emphasizes the moral difference of God. And God expects His people to be like Himself. That's why God says what He says. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you remember the church at Corinth, most troublesome church of Paul's life. Paul wrote 29 chapters of the New Testament to this church at Corinth, and they had all kinds of problems. People think of 1 Corinthians as the book that speaks about spiritual gifts, and it does. But that was one of their minor problems at Corinth. They had some major problems at Corinth. And Paul writes about these major problems in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9-11. through 11. He says, Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived, neither the, neither the sexually immoral. The word there in Greek is pornaya. Guess what English word we get from that? Pornography. Neither those who live pornographic lives, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders. Dear friend, the next time somebody tells you that God never speaks against homosexuality in the Bible, quote that one and 25 others. Okay? Not picking on any particular group here, because Paul talks about adulterers too. He talks about sexually promiscuous people. 
But he does condemn homosexuality. And for those who tell us he does not, they've not read the Bible. They don't even know what's in it. These sexual sins God condemns. Nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers. You see, the sexual sins are not all the sins God condemns. There's a whole list of them. Five or six more he just spouts off right there. And he finally says, those who do those things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And that's what some of you were. Past tense verb. That's what some of you were. Notice he didn't say that's what some of you are. He said that's what some of you were. Because you were changed. Notice how he says it here in verse 11. That's what some of you are, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. A couple of more sermons in this series. We're going to talk about temples of the Spirit. That our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit according to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, this very same chapter. And we're temples of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because we have been bought with a price. We are not our own. We now belong to God. Your body belongs to Jesus Christ if He's your Savior. And because your body belongs to Him, you aren't free to do with it anything you want to do. You're only free to do with it what He tells you to do and commands you to do. You belong to Him. You're not your own. You're not what you once were. You're a different person. You were made different beginning on the inside and it's made its way to the outside, I hope. And by making its way to the outside, people know you're a different person. And I'm going to tell you something that is the truth of God. If the Christians in America would live the way that God has called us to live, we would not have a problem with morality in our nation anymore. For the people in this nation would see the winsome lives of believers and they would determine that they wanted to live that way too. But it's because believers, so many believers, are frolicking in the mud with the rest of the world that the non-Christian folks of America can't see the difference in our lives. And that's a tragedy. We have let them down. And we have let God down. Sanctification. Notice what Paul says here. As he's talking about that, he goes on to let us know In Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Some good verses, by the way, in Titus. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. He writes, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no. To say what? To say no. To say what? To say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for Himself a people that are His very own, eager to do what is good. We don't start the Christian life as holy, do we? As a matter of fact, the only way you can start the Christian life is by recognizing your sin. One of the things that I say to parents when they bring children to me for counseling for salvation is I say there are two absolutely essential things that children must understand if they're going to come to Christ. Number one, they've got to have a personal awareness of their own sinfulness. They've got to know that they're sinners. But you see, dear friend, if you're not a sinner, you don't need a Savior, do you? You only need a Savior if you're a sinner. And they've got to understand their personal sinfulness. The other thing they've got to understand is the concept of substitution. 
that Jesus Christ died in their place on the cross. And if they understand those two things, they can be saved. So we don't come to the Christian life as holy. We come to the Christian life as sinners because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So we come to Christ as sinners, but we shouldn't stay that way. There's an expression in evangelism that says, you've got to catch a fish before you can clean it. And that's true. It's a good statement. You've got to catch a fish before you can clean it. It's a good statement because it keeps us from expecting people to act like Christians before they become Christians. And some of us are bad about that. Some of us expect the whole world to act like Christians. So-and-so did me wrong. Well, sure they did you wrong. They don't know the Lord. What else do you expect them to do? So-and-so did this to me. Sure they did. They don't know the Lord yet. What else do you expect them to do? We shouldn't expect people to act like Christians until they become Christians. But dear friend, my fear today is that many of the fish that we catch are never getting cleaned. That's my fear. Many of the fish that we catch are never getting cleaned. For you see, when people profess Christ but persist in their sin, then they've got to honestly, we've got to honestly ask whether they know Jesus or not. For Jesus Himself said of such people, On judgment day I will say to them, Depart from me, for I never knew you, you who are lawbreakers, you who work iniquity. Be becoming sanctified simply means that we're becoming more like Jesus every day. And isn't that what you want for your life? Isn't that what you want for your life? To become more and more like Jesus Christ each and every day? Then fifthly, the Holy Spirit cultivates a hope in our hearts that is inspired by Christ's resurrection. The Holy Spirit cultivates a hope in our hearts that is inspired by Christ's resurrection. This might be my favorite one. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. verse that Greg shared with us last Sunday morning. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who in His great mercy has caused us to be born again into a living hope. What kind of hope? A living hope. Why does it live? Because or through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Our hope lives because Jesus lives. It's that simple. You and I can have hope in our lives and hope in our hearts because Jesus Christ lives. And for that reason, we don't have to be afraid to die. We don't have to fear death anymore. Hermann Lying, a German Christian, was to be executed by the Nazis during World War II. In his cell on the night before he was to be hung, Lying wrote a note to his parents, and he said that there were two feelings that absolutely overwhelmed his soul. He said, I am first in a joyous mood, and secondly, I am filled with great anticipation. Think about that. Here's a man who knows that the next morning he's going to die. And he says, I am filled with joy. And with a great anticipation as I think about my heavenly home. And I'll be there in just a few hours. I'll be with Christ. Then Herman made this beautiful affirmation. He said, he wrote, in Christ I've put my faith and precisely today I have faith in Him more more firmly than ever before. Finally, he urged his parents to read the pages of the New Testament and to take comfort for it, or from it rather. He finally wrote these words, Look where you will. Everywhere you will find jubilation over the grace that makes us children of God. What can befall a child of God? Of what should I be afraid? On the contrary, I rejoice. Your friend, as believers in Jesus Christ, you and I can rejoice even in the face of death. We can rejoice because we know 
that it means the end of all the difficulty of these days, and it means the beginning of life everlasting for us. A place in God's heaven for us. Not because we deserve it, but because Jesus Christ bought it for us through His blood. Dear friend, we have that. We can hope and we no longer need to be afraid. On June 7, 1977, after heavy rains, the dam on Barnes Lake broke, sending 176 million gallons of water over Tacoa Falls and leaving a path of death, destruction, and devastation throughout the small Christian college campus there at Tacoa Falls College. 39 people lost their lives, mostly students and their families at the college. In the aftermath of that tragedy, someone wrote a book entitled Dam Break in Georgia, and it concludes with these words which are fitting for us today. The author wrote, Ordinarily in disasters such as the one at Tacoa Falls, there are all kinds of threats, recriminations, and words of anger. They just were not heard at Tacoa. Somehow, the reactions of these people of the book, the book of course being the Bible, these people of the book were different. The way they faced death was different too. There was strength, serenity, and calmness. At Tacoa Falls, these biblical ideas were like the promises or these biblical promises were like the rails that carried the trains through storms and darkness. They provided stability and direction. Death simply did not threaten these people the way that it threatens. Now listen to this. Death did not threaten them the way it threatens casual Christians or unbelieving humanists. Christians have always died well, and they always will. Words about death from those who had, the families of those who had died. But lastly, the Holy Spirit secures our salvation by sealing us for the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit secures our salvation by sealing us for the day of redemption. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14 says, In Him, that is in Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. With a view to the redemption of His own possession. You know, dear friend, what redemption means. Redemption means you have been bought back. You're not your own. You now belong to Christ. He paid for you on the cross when He gave His blood. And because you're not your own, you just can't do as you please and everything that you please. You've got to obey Him. You've got to follow Him. You're now His. And one day when Christ comes back, the Bible says He will fulfill that redemption promise. Right now we have His Spirit as the pledge that He's going to keep His promise. And the promise is to return for us one day and fully redeem us, fully take us to Himself. That's the promise we have in Christ. And God's Spirit is the sealing of that promise in our lives. Those verses give us a sure and certain security. With regard to our eternal home in heaven, not all security is so sure or certain. In his book, At Dawn We Slept, author Gordon Prang quotes journalist Clark Beach, who wrote these words about the security of the United States Naval Base at Pearl Harbor, on September 6th, 1941. The journalist wrote, A Japanese attack on Hawaii is regarded as the most unlikely thing in the world, with one chance in a million of being successful. Besides having more powerful defenses than any other post under the American flag, it is protected by distance. But just three months later, 
on December 7th, 1941. As we've all heard, a day that has lived in infamy. The Imperial Japanese Navy Air Service attacked Pearl Harbor. And in that attack, 2,335 American soldiers died. 1,400 or 1,143 were wounded. 18 ships were sunk or run aground, including five battleships. What a false security. What a false security the words of Clark Beach gave to our world and our nation about the vulnerability of Pearl Harbor. Fortunately for us as Christians, the words of Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 give us a strong and sure security of our ultimate salvation on the day of our redemption. The Spirit is ours now as God's promise that He will fully redeem us when Christ comes back. The Holy Spirit has done all of these miraculous works of salvation in our lives. Why would anyone not want to be saved? When you think about all the wonderful things that Christ has done for us through His Spirit, why would anyone not want to be saved? Why would anyone not want to know the new birth in Jesus Christ? To know the forgiveness of their sins, the hope of everlasting life, a brand new life and a purpose in that life that you've never had before. Why would you not want that, dear friend? Because Christ can give you that. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for all that You've done for us. We thank You for all that Your Spirit has done for us. And we pray, Lord, this morning that You would help us as we make decisions that would please and glorify You. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.